Proverbs chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning with an emphasis on verse 2. We're working through the nuts and bolts of work. We're realizing, I hope, that God created us to get stuff done. We see that from the very beginning in Genesis 1. We read that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created us to relate to him within the context of work. We don't have a situation where we have work over here and God over here. We have a situation where God, I think this is entirely unique to all of the world's religions, where God essentially creates us to be his apprentices working with him in this great workshop that he calls the world, that we call the world. And yes, original sin has deeply damaged the state of the workshop, but the redemption we have in Christ through the gospel has made us actually in a better position than even Adam and Eve were in, in some sense, and that is, is now we work alongside God in this workshop of a world as his sons and daughters. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. 1 John 3, 1 says, behold, what manner of love this is that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we have this idea laid out before us in the scriptures that God welcomes us into this world full of work. And what Proverbs is in many respects is sort of rules for dad's workshop. It's sort of this is how you can work with me as you exercise dominion, which I created you to do throughout the world. And so that, that is, I think, a very encouraging and appropriate lens to look at the first verse of Proverbs 13, 1, um, to, see that, uh, to see Proverbs 13, 1 through that lens, to see a wise son hears his father's instruction, and to look at that through a gospel lens and say, well, I have a father here on earth, but I have a heavenly father thanks to Christ. I am a son or daughter of the, of the God of the universe who created all things and who is sustaining all things by the word of his power. And he's inviting me in to work with him, to work alongside him as an apprentice. And not only is, is he inviting me in in some random sense, but Ephesians 2 says that even as he was creating the world, even before he created the world, he had in mind particular areas of work for each one of us that we would walk with him in those things. Today we're going to focus mostly on one tool that God has given us to work, and that tool is found in verse 2 of Proverbs 13. Let me read 2 and 3 for you. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Now, I want to talk today almost exclusively about the very first part of verse 2 because I think it is, well, it caught me by surprise, and I think it is perhaps the one area of speech that we give the least attention to. To be clear, Proverbs 13.2 is talking when it says the fruit of a man's mouth. It's talking about our speech. 
And of course, this was an extremely oral culture, like they didn't do a lot of writing. So when we talk about speech, it'd be good if we could just incorporate just all the things we do to communicate, whether that be speaking or writing or email or texts or social media posts or whatever. It's good when we're thinking about the fruit of the mouth referred to in verse 2 to just think of all the ways that we communicate. And what's presented here is something I don't think we think about very often. And that is, is that a man's speech, a woman's speech, can be used as a tool to build wealth. Now, you'd have to have been here for other sermons to know that when we use the term wealth, we use it in an exceedingly broad way, a way that encompasses sort of the whole person and all of time. We're not wedging wealth into one narrow category, into one particular domain. We're not wedging wealth into money only or into this life only. But when we think of wealth in its broadest sense, the way that God sees it, the idea that we could use our speech to build that kind of wealth, I don't think that's something that we often think about. I think most of the times when we think about the role of speech and wealth, we have different categories that we know more about. For instance, I understand how sinful speech can build unrighteous wealth, right? Like, I understand how you could deceive, you could scheme, you could come up with a Ponzi scheme, you could lie about the number of miles on your car, so on and so forth, and you could scheme your way into wealth. I can see how using sinful speech leads to wealth. I can also see how sinful speech ruins wealth. Um, I think that, that we'll always find news stories for as long as we live of someone on the top of their game who says the wrong thing and it all comes crumbling down. And of course, those are the ones that make headlines. The ones that don't make headlines are the people we encounter every day who aren't gainfully employed and can't be gainfully employed because they can't stop mouthing off to their bosses, right? right? And there are really people like that all, all around. And so I think we're aware of the category, sinful speech sometimes build wealth, and sinful speech can certainly destroy wealth, either in its accumulation or in ruining what has already be, been accumulated. In terms of righteous speech, I think the category we're most familiar with is the idea that righteous speech can produce poverty and hardships and afflictions, like it did in the lives of the prophets and the apostles. But now we've got a fourth category presented here in this text, and that is, is that righteous speech can produce good in our lives. It can produce, in its broadest sense, wealth. Well, to begin with, as we think about this idea, I want to let you know that this verse isn't kind of a one-off in the book of Proverbs. There are two other verses that say almost exactly the same thing, and I want you to see those. For instance, in Proverbs 12, 14, it says, From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. So here, kind of using classical Hebraic parallelism, comparing and contrasting, we can see that in God's eyes, our speech is just one more tool in our toolbox for the uh, getting work done. Our hands are tools to get work done. Our speech, our tongues are tools to get work done. And then in Proverbs 18.20, it says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. So that's the idea we're going to explore today. How can righteous speech 
produce righteous wealth? In what way is the tongue a tool, not just for bad, but for good? One of the kind of broader principles we want to establish on the front end is that this verse tells us that silence is not a long-term solution. If the three categories that I had presented to you uh, were the only categories, and if, if the consequences of speech were almost entirely negative, then it might just be wise for all of us just to stop talking. But I think what we can see here is, is that because speech is presented in various places as something that does great good, we can't simply respond to all the potential problems associated with talking with abstinence from talking. You know, God has given us so many gifts, and these gifts are so incredibly powerful. And these gifts can all do so much to, to build or to destroy. And I think when we encounter any really incredible gift, one way of handling sort of the consequences and the power in those gifts is to think, well, maybe we should just abstain from using it altogether. Well, temporary abstinence from one of God's gifts might be a good solution, but it isn't the best and ultimate solution. And so when it comes to speech, I don't think the option presented to us by God is to just not talk. And you'd say, well, who's thinking that? Who's considering that option? I don't think anyone's considering that option full time. But I think in certain relationships and in certain situations, we do maybe consider that option. And, and I think, well, maybe that's the right option for the moment. But maybe we also need to take a look and say, how can I grow in, this, in the use of this tool so that, so that silence isn't my only solution? How can I use this thing called speech and communication uh, in a way that blesses others? If you think about it this way, you know, only God's words, uh, he, he never has to worry about, you know, are these going to, are these going to produce what I want them to or not, and so on and so forth. And that is uh, for a couple of reasons, one having to do with his nature in terms of his perfections, uh, and another having to do with his nature in terms of his, his skill, right? So, so I think the aim is we just want to talk more like God. God talks, God speaks, um, and we want to speak more like God. Now, as we're kind of ramping up to discuss this, I thought I would also just start dropping hints as to what I think the ultimate solution is as we work our way through all these ideas. And I thought I would speak specifically just to, for a moment as we're ramping up to people that are nervous speakers. What do I mean by nervous speakers? Well, I don't mean careful speakers, although I understand that the difference between a nervous speaker and a careful speaker may not always be clear. A careful speaker is basically doing exactly what they should do. They don't need my advice. The nervous speaker is what I mean by someone who finds social interaction to be nerve-wracking, who finds conversation to be nerve-wracking. You know, the, the, uh, the, the nervous system's response to stress is well understood, right? It's fight, flight, or freeze. And you can see various people in communication, in conversation, they just don't feel at ease, just generally. And there may be a few people that that's, uh, that's an exception to, but for the most part, there are a lot of people who will, you know, that there are some of us in, in times of nervousness, we will fight, we will we'll, we'll talk too much. 
right? You'll overtalk. And then there are other people, when they speak, they are quite nervous. And I want to just throw this out to you. If that is a significant thing that you're aware of, here's what I would like to just throw out. And I'm, again, I'm kind of giving away the ending. Here's what I would encourage you. I'd like you to evaluate whether you are, whether you are building your sense of significance into the way that that conversation goes. Okay? Because if that's going on, well, no wonder some people would over-talk. If they're, if they're in a situation where they, they feel in, in a conversation that their sense of worth, their sense of significance, and so forth is, is hanging on this conversation, then some of us are just going to overdo it. And then others of us are going to clench up and sort of, it, we're going to freeze. We're not actually going to be our true selves, the person God made us to be, the person we actually are honestly at ease often. And so what I want to kind of foreshadow for you is, is what if you went into that conversation full of the Holy Spirit gift of confidence? What if you had just, what if you were just filled to the brim with confidence that God has you, that you are significant in his eyes, and that he is all you need? Do you think that would change the way that you spoke? Just something to think about. Okay, so uh, moving on from that, let's start asking some questions about the specifics of this. How does this work? How, how it, can it be that our tongues can be used to produce positive good? Like how can, and it's not just positive good in a general sense, it's like positive good for us, right? The verse actually says, by the fruit of a man's mouth, he eats what is good or he is satisfied. How, how is it, how can it be that, Godly speech can produce good outcomes for us. So that's kind of where we're going to hang for the rest of this time. Well, I want to kind of think, we're going to think about specific forms of speech in a minute, but I want to think for a moment about, well, how would this actually even work? I think there are three ideas that you should consider. The first one is, is the book of Proverbs and the Bible itself just says that God pays attention. He's listening. And if you do righteous stuff, he rewards you and he blesses you and he provides and so on and so forth. So one of the simplest answers is like, why, how, could God, how could godly speech wind up being a blessing to me, bringing blessings to me? Well, it's because God like, notices that you're speaking well and, and God is the rewarder of those who seek him. And that's one way, and Proverbs is very clear to be thinking all the time about a God who sees and a God who knows and a God who cares. I think probably the main way that Proverbs would, would show a mechanism of action for this idea is simply this. When your speech blesses others, they will bless you. It sounds very transactional. I'm not going to get into that right now. It just seems to be the way that Proverbs presents the information. When your speech blesses others, they will bless you. I think another way to think about it is, you know, in this verse, we're shown that speech is fruit. It's described as the fruit of the mouth. Well, if it's a fruit, that means that it's intended to feed and seed. If it's a fruit, that means it's intended to feed and seed. So if the words that are coming out of your mouth are, are good fruit, then you're, you're feeding people good things, and you're also seeding good things in, into, um, into their lives. Let me just give you a few Proverbs that show this sort of, what I guess you might say is a somewhat transactional relationship with positive speech. 
Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. So the lips of the righteous feed many. And in the Old Testament, especially environments of food scarcity, there's all sorts of hero stories where people feed others, right? So, so the person who feeds many is, is blessed. The person who, who feeds many is seen as kind of a hero. Well, the, right, the lips of the righteous feed many. So you bless people with your righteous speech. You're feeding them, and they're going to be blessed by that and bless you. Proverbs 11.11 says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but the mouth of the wicked is overthrown. And by the context of that verse and also the surrounding verses, we can tell that this is not a blessing that God is putting on that man. This is a blessing that the upright man is speaking out to the city. This is a blessing that that the upright man is pronouncing over the city. Proverbs 16, 13, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. Proverbs 20, 15, there is gold in abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. So what is the mechanism for action that would cause this verse to be true? That the fruit of our mouths can lead to our own blessing. I think the answer is, is that when we use our speech in a way that God intends and it causes blessings on others, those blessings come back to us. Now, I just want to pause here and just talk about leadership for a minute because many of you are leading something. Most of you are leading something. Um, and I think it's, under, it's important to understand or to have a godly imagination for the way that your speech could affect those that you lead based on the principles we're seeing here. Um, you need to understand that the way you talk will over time get implanted into the people and the culture that you're leading and that you will see that you, the, you will see the seediness of your fruit. Seediness sounds, is a bad word, right? You will see the seeds in that fruit taking root in other people's lives and so on and so forth. So if you're leading something, Um, then, man, if you can just speak the way God wants you to speak out of the heart that he wants you to have, you will see that over time, um, very often, those you lead will begin to, that those seeds will take root in their own lives. And specifically, again, to kind of foreshadow the end of the sermon, if you can learn to speak with your heart at rest in God, So you're leading something, and if you can learn to speak to the people that you're leading with your heart fully at rest in God, and not striving for any recognition, not striving for respect, not striving to be thought of as smart or insightful, if you can simply interact with those you lead while your heart is at rest in God, with full confidence in God, then whether you're talking about spreadsheets or schematics or operational strategies, the fruit that comes out of a heart that is at rest with God will wind up being a blessing to those that you lead. So let's talk now about forms of speech that bless God. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because there are a lot of things I could list. And actually, this list is only so helpful, as you'll see in a moment. A few ways to think about this, that if you were going to go out tomorrow and say, okay, I want to try to use my tongue as a tool to earn 
more blessings, right? Like, uh, okay, what kind of things would you start with? The first one would be to give honor where honor is due. Give honor where honor is due. Romans 12.10 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. And Romans 13.7 says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And here's what I want to propose. And I think this is especially crucial if you're on the younger side of things. This just takes a long time to realize how important and effective this is. If you're interacting with a person in a position of authority, please understand that for whatever reason, and you might not have any idea why God would do this, but for whatever reason, God has put that person in that position of authority. And so it is your privilege and your opportunity to verbally recognize what God has made clear to you as a believer and to verbally show honor to people in positions of authority. Now, you want to talk about something that will absolutely distinguish you in your environment? Listen, if you see someone who is in a position of prominence, no matter how well they are doing and so on and so forth, and to be honest, your honor may not be the only thing that gets shared, but by all means, there should be no hesitancy to honor those whom God has placed in a position of prominence. A second category for showing honor is just showing honor to people who are performing well. You know, it's, it's remarkable how this doctrine has been lost, but it's, the church is the pillar of truth in the world. And you say, well, what does the pillar of truth mean? Well, here's how I would put it. It is our job to call balls and strikes on everything, everybody, everywhere, even when people don't even believe in strikes. And one of the things that we do is we catch people doing well. We catch unbelievers doing well. We catch people who aren't doing well in a lot of things doing well. And we take a moment to say, you are doing well. Uh, whenever it's only, it's never not awkward, but whenever it's only slightly awkward, awkward and I see a dad out with his kids at Home Depot or whatever. Uh, the kids are always crying at Home Depot. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible thing kids have to endure to go to Home Depot with their dad. I've been told this my whole life. Well for the last 22 years of my life. But when, when, you, when I catch a dad being good dad, I don't know this man. I just say, hey, good on you. You're being a good dad. Good, good, good on you. This is a way to show honor to people who honestly, to be honest, that dad might be trying out being a good dad and seeing how it fits. Like, I don't know this guy. But in that moment, what I can see, and it's my job as a priest before God, and you are priests as well, to declare what is clean and unclean. And when you see clean, when you see good, you should say something. Give honor not only to those in positions of prominence, but to those who are just performing, even mundane things. Give honor to those people. And finally, give honor to people who are in a favorable providence from God if God has been good to them, let them know that God has been good to them. Sam Crabtree wrote in his wonderful book called Practicing Affirmation, God is glorified in us when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. And uh, I just think one of the ways that you can use your tongue as a tool in this sort of positive sense is to give honor. Another is to give wise counsel. I won't get into this 
that much, but the Bible is full of career advancement stories, and I can't think of many of them that did not include the hero who rose to prominence in his career uh, not giving good counsel. I, I think that that's almost always an integral part of these career advancement stories in the Bible. Another way that you can use your tongue as a tool is to ask good questions. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 25 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. One of the ways that you can interact with your superiors and also those who report to you is you can help them figure out what they're really thinking and what they really want and what's really the most important thing to them. You know, those, those are not things that we can figure out on our own often. It is so helpful to have someone else that can know how to ask a few perceptive questions. And at the end of that conversation, you might not have given any counsel. That person is going to feel fed and blessed by the fruit of your mouth. So, I, I mean, I could talk about these ad infinitum. There are millions of these. Another one that people overlook all the time is the grace of small talk. And I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. But just even being willing to talk to someone about things that we all know are mundane is honestly often an indicator that you value that person enough to sit and talk with them about things that are mundane. So those are just some of the categories that you could think of when you're talking. I just want you to leave this place saying, okay, I've got this tool that is not only for bad, it can be for good, and I can, I can, I can make something out of this, and God can use this tool like he uses these tools to accumulate godly, holistic wealth. But here's the deal. There's way more nuance going on that we need to identify. This is so much deeper than having particular strategies or categories of speech. You see, everything I just listed has a opposite that can sound exactly the same. Let me give you some examples. There is often no grammatical difference between honor and flattery. Okay, so Proverbs would just, just uniformly condemn flattery. It would just be like, stop blowing smoke. Stop, you know, like it is, it is uniformly talks about the evil of flattery and the selfishness of flattery. And often there's not even a, a word different in, the, in someone who is showing honor and someone who's showing flattery. Now, sometimes there is, but a lot of times they're not. I was reading through Daniel earlier this, uh, this week, and at the very beginning of Daniel, um, the Bible does this cool thing where it always shows the court magicians and wise men as just a bunch of sniveling fools, you know. And then at the very end of the Bible's treatment on magician and wise men, they get redeemed when they go see Jesus. Like, there's this theme you could follow throughout the scriptures. In, in Daniel, there are the sniveling, you know, cowardly wise men, magicians, and they say to the king, O king, live forever. And you know in that, you, when you read that passage, you know that's exactly the opposite of their, what they're hoping. They're hoping, in that particular context, they're hoping he is dead by midnight. And they say, O king, live forever. So that's flattery. And then several chapters in, 
Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, reluctantly by the king. The king gets tricked, and uh, guess by who? And uh, and and so uh, he comes. This is this. Hold on a second. Okay, I I have too much to share this morning. I I gotta be careful. It's better for me to pause and catch myself and go down seven paragraphs. Okay, let me just paint the picture. Daniel's in the lion's den, which is a cave that is covered by a, a large rock. The king goes at the break of dawn to the den to find God's chosen one and cries into the cave, has the God whom you serve been able to deliver you? So this, I'm not going down the Christological rabbit trail right now. You can go down that on your own, but the, the, the passage is pregnant with Christological prophecy. King standing outside the tomb, and he, he yells that. And what do you hear from the back of the, the, the tomb, the lion's den? What's the first thing you hear from Daniel? O king, live forever. Not flattery. He is a man who is so satiated in God, he is literally able to bless his enemies. We wonder, how does that... See, this is another rabbit trail, but we wonder, how does this work when Jesus says to bless our enemies? We got to tell you something. Get stuffed on God, and you will find blessings burping out even on your enemies. And so uh, the main point I was trying to go there was just like, there's actually no grammatical difference in those two, in those two texts. They say the exact same thing. But one of them is a heart of flattery and one of them is a heart of honor. Let me give you another example. You know, we just got through the Christmas season and there's this famous thing that people try to over-explain um, because it feels contradictory where uh, Mary asks a question of the angel and she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel's like, it's okay, Mary. This is how it's going to be. And then Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, or the soon-to-be father of John the Baptist, he says, how will this be to the angel? How will this be? Because I'm old, because we're old. And the angel's like, how dare you? And strikes him deaf. And we say, oh, well, there's a difference in who they were and so on and so forth. Guys, this is simple. This is just the difference in the heart. That's all, that's all we're talking about here. So you can have the same kinds of questions the same kinds of honor, but one is flattery and one is honor. You get the same kinds of questions and one is unbelief and one is like, I don't know, like just a logistical question, I guess. Um, here's another example. What's the difference between idle speech and small talk? In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you this, you will give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. I guess we can't talk about the weather now. One of the old, old biblical commentators, Doddridge, writes, tending to innocent mirth to exhilarate the spirits. So he's basically tending to humor, trying to be funny, to make people laugh, to make their heart bubble, is not idle discourse, as the time spent in necessary recreation is not idle time. And what's he saying? He's just saying it's okay to want to make people smile. It's okay to want to make people, lev to, to levitate a moment. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. 
But we all know there is such a thing as idle talk, and we all know that joking can veer there, and it's just this stew. It's not, there's no formula. It's not as if the list that I provided a moment ago can't be entirely wrecked by the wrong heart. What's the difference between gentle speech and sugarcoating passivity? And what's the difference between godly reproof and throwing flaming arrows of accusation at your brother? Friends, we would be fools to think these things can be dissected using grammar or tone as the main way. What we're talking about here is the heart. What we're talking about is the heart. The heart is key. In all of these examples, the main difference behind sinful speech and godly speech aren't the words. It's the heart behind the words. And this actually makes a ton of sense when we look back at our verse, at Proverbs 13, 2, where it says that what comes out, these words, what is, it, what is Proverbs 13, 2 call them? Fruit, the fruit of his mouth. By the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good. Well, if the mouth is where the fruit appears, well, we know our Bibles well enough to know where the fruit is rooted, right? Jesus actually explicitly tells us in Luke 6.43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And here's our key. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we can, we can say, like, I'm going to aim to give honor. I'm going to aim to ask good questions. I'm going to aim to tell people the truth. I'm going to aim to give good counsel. But friends, if we really want this proverb to be true for us, if we want the fruit that comes out here to be the kind that brings positive, godly, holistic wealth into our lives, then we need to look deeper down the pipe and see what is at the heart of our speech, which is indeed our heart. Okay, so just to review, so far, let me just give you a few points of application that we've established at this point. We've seen that in addition to the negative aspects of speech with which we are well aware, both theologically and personally, there are positive potentials for our speech. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are bound up in the tongue. We tend to focus on the death side. And we need to be more hopeful. There's a lot of good that can come from getting this thing figured out. We should probably make the effort. Two, there are various forms of speech in the Bible, like honor giving, asking good questions, giving wise counsel, that will provide us places to start. But three, good speech is not always identifiable by the words themselves, but rather we have to look at the heart behind them. So now let me just get into what I think God really is most concerned that you hear this morning, as I've tried to keep my radar, my antenna up, after studying all of this subject for a few weeks and really peeling back layers and layers and trying to understand, well, what does God want to communicate through this idea? I think that this is the one direction out of many we could go that I'd like us to focus on. 
it's just so important for us to understand that all of the words that could potentially come out of our mouth that will do good in the world must flow out of a heart that is at rest in God. Twice in Proverbs 12, we saw a phrase, we didn't look at it very closely, uh, the phrase is the root of the righteous. It appears twice in Proverbs 12, one at the beginning and one kind of in the middle. Well, that's a relevant idea when talking about the fruit of the mouth because a good root provides the plant with the necessary stability and nourishment to make the fruit good. And that's really the thing we should be asking when we have this kind of positive, godly imagination for the good use of speech. It's like, well, I really, I really, really like this to be an agent for life and not just death. And uh, I don't think just not talking is the long-term solution. Might be a short-term one, but long-term, no. So how do I, how can this change? Because it seems like the promises associated with it changing are pretty big. And I think the best way to summarize this is when your heart is fixed and fed, when the root is established in Christ and it has the stability that comes from being established in Christ and the nutrition that comes from being established in Christ, then the words that come out of your mouth are going to be words that nourish and feed. And they will feed you too. So let me say this in a negative way because I think we'll all understand if we, if we, God gave us just a little grace of self-perception. Almost all of the sinful uses of speech that we see in the world and that we've ourselves done come out of a heart that is seeking to use speech as a means of establishing significance in the eyes of others. So when the heart is insecure and striving and hungry and restless, the word fruit is going to reflect that inner disquietude. And remember this, uh, parents in particular, but you know, married people, remember this, like if you, the, the, your fruit is it's feeding and seeding. And so if what is in your heart is disquietude and a, and a striving for significance and feeling unsettled in Christ and so on, However you, whatever, no matter how much self-control you have, no matter how perfect you are at word framing and word choosing, friends, we are spiritual beings. We are not AI, chat GPT, chat bots that just receive. I can type into that thing. It's, it's amazing, by the way. I can type in that thing, but it never will know whether my heart is one way or another. But people at some deep level do, especially over the long haul. And so this fruit that's coming out into your homes, this fruit that's coming out into your marriages, this fruit that's coming out at your workplace, this fruit that's coming out towards your children, all of your words could be perfectly ordered. Your tone could be perfectly congenial. But what is in the heart? And if it isn't satisfaction in God, then what it is probably is an attempt to use those words to find satisfaction in some other way. So then, rather than giving, you're taking. Rather than your words giving, you're taking. And that's why it's so fundamental that we are the most, we should always be careful. 
We should never trust our hearts fully. We should never trust the state of our hearts and assume that, you know, this, this is good. Whatever's coming out is great. But when we are aware of feeling offended, insecure, unsettled, we need to be exceedingly careful because what is going to happen, the fruit that will come out out of that state of our heart is fruit that's taking, not fruit that's giving. Can you imagine just like a science fiction kind of scenario where like a group of people were dropped on a deserted island and first it's pretty awesome because the weather's beautiful and they're on a beach and so on and so forth and, uh, and there's tons of fruit. But can you imagine that every time they ate that fruit, it actually took, say, 100 calories instead of gave them 100 calories. And so there's these people, and they're gallivanting, and for a while, they all look really good in their swimsuits. And they're like, dang, this island is perfect. But what's happening over time is this, this community is starving to death. Well, friends, there are homes and families and churches and marriages where all of the words are taking words. No matter how perfectly they're framed. And what you'll see over time is a thinning of the soul. And you will encounter marriages and families and children who are spiritually as gaunt as something you'd see after World War II in Poland, right? Because all of the words are taking words. No one's being fed. The heart motive behind everything that's being said is a search for significance, a search for meaning, a search for respect, a search for praise. Paul Tripp said this way in his book, War on Words. We do not say the right thing because we do not believe the right thing. And here's how I would put it. When you use words to build yourself up, it's an easy mistake to make because you know the tongue is a tool. But you are always, in the end, tearing yourself down. That's kind of how Proverbs takes teaching. It's like, let me show you the thing you think you know and show you why you're wrong. <laughs> let, let me show you the thing behind the thing. And that's what it's doing with us with speech. When the words you speak come out of a lack of satisfaction in God, you will bear fruit of dissatisfaction in your life. When you are feeling less than, here's what I would counsel you to do from personal experience. Do not use your words as an attempt to remedy that situation. Okay, Chris, thank you. Don't use your words as an attempt to remedy that situation. What should I do? Do not use your words to remedy the situation. Rather than put your words out into the world, put God's word into your heart because that's where this is all breaking down. This gives a whole new meaning and dimension to what James says when he says, be slow to speak and quick to listen because only a person who has listened well to God's word can speak words of life. So when you are feeling insecure and you are tempted to use words as a means of establishing your position, stop. You don't need to put any more words out into the world right now. You need to put God's words back into your inner world. The real solution is words. They're just not your words. When you're feeling overlooked and discounted and hurt and so forth, 
don't use your words to even the scale. You won't actually get what you're looking for. The biggest solution to those feelings won't come from people hearing what you have to say. You think that being heard will make it all better. It's false. It's inner pride. Hearing God will make it all better. You do not have a speech problem. You have an ear problem masquerading as a speech problem. It's not your tongue that's the problem. It's your spiritual hearing. Here's another way to say it. When you are the least trusting of God's word, you should be the least trusting of your words. You know, for a long time, I've really thought through and prayed through the relationship between pride and anxious insecurity. Uh, pride and insecurity, probably just to keep the word anxious out of it. I mean, that would be the way I would have been thinking about it. What's the relationship between pride and insecurity? Because there seems to be one. It just is, and I've, I've read a lot about this and looked at a lot of different ways of talking about this. It's taken a lot of prayer and meditation and scripture reading and so forth to figure this out for me in a way that satisfies me. Because the reason why it's difficult is because people who are insecure do not feel haughty or boastful or full of themselves. So how can that be related to pride? Here's the way that I've figured it out for me, and, and hopefully maybe this helps you. Pride shuts down God's word. Pride chooses to believe self over scripture. Whether it's sense, feeling, perception, or whatever. Pride shuts down God's word. Now, that is so deep in us that we don't necessarily even know that we've done that. So if you have a pulse, you struggle with pride, and that pride is so deep, it is not, it is not often recognizable. But the way it manifests from the very beginning is unbelief toward God and an untrust, a lack of trust in God's word. So here's how I would, there's the word picture that helped me. Such a dad word picture, sorry. Pride goes down to the basement and shuts off the main breaker going into the house, which is the word of God that flows into our hearts through faith. Pride goes down to the, the main breaker, and now all the juice is cut off. And then the house gets dark and cold and way too quiet, and that's the state we actually are aware of. We feel dark and cold, and God seems way too quiet. So we feel the insecurity. We don't feel the pride. Pride is our native state. Fish don't feel water. We feel the insecurity. We feel the coldness. We feel unsettled. We feel the opposite of fixed. We feel the opposite of fed. We feel the opposite of rooted. And, but we know, because we were created to know this, that words have power. And because we are caught in the cycle of original sin, the solution is always our version of God's thing. And so we have this distant, you know, Jurassic memory of, well, you know, words have power. So I remember something about words having power. This is all instinctive. And we're cold and we're insecure and the house is dark. And so we think, well, words have power. So let me just use my words to add a little heat and a little light. And some of you really do pick fights. And people have told you this, and you're like, I don't pick fights. 
you pick fights when you are cold because you know that a little fire would make you feel less cold. And you think your words are illuminating things. They're not. They're, speak, they're words coming out of darkness, and they've just got darkness all around them. So what's the connection between pride and, and, and uh, insecurity? Pride shuts off God's word. It's just like, I don't believe this. And it can happen in an instant. Happens all the time. And then we start getting cold, and it's dark, and we're like, well, shoot, the power went out. I don't even know how that happened. What, what, what could heat this room up? What could light this place? Words. Words have power. Let me say things. Let me try to sound like whatever your version is. Some of you want to, like, you know, I just want to win arguments. You, just, you, might, you might use victimhood as your strategy. Whatever your verbal strategy is for light and heat. And some of you just use silence, which is also not going to work. Not entirely. This is what we really have to be pivoting toward if we want to see our words become tools that God uses to bring blessings into our life. We have to get our hearts full of satisfaction and rest in Christ. We have to actively cultivate that. And just as some, just some practical guidance. Suppose you are a nervous speaker and you're, you're going to places and maybe you're avoiding situations because I just don't like being in conversations are awkward. I tense up. I don't know how to talk and so on and so forth. Well, let, me, let me speak to, to this on both sides. If you are a good talker by nature and you are with a nervous talker, the best thing you can do as soon as possible is to establish whether unknown, you know, in an unsaid way, you have nothing to prove with me. You're my friend. I love you. I recognize you as a brother or sister in Christ. We're not in a transaction right now. You can just be you. So that's one way we can serve people who are in this state. But if you're in that nervous state, well, take some time before you show up and just remind yourself where your significance comes from. Let me wrap up. We've already gone too long, but I'll be very quick. Verse 1, to go back to Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction. Well, what is our father's instruction? There is one thing the father has said to us that in, in many respects I think I can prove trumps everything else he's ever said to us. And that is in Luke 9.35 where he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I could prove that, I think, also by how Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so here's what I would want to leave you with. Listen to the father. What's the father say? Listen to what I'm saying to you through my son. And I would summarize it by paraphrasing something a fellow Kansan uh, a man named James Bryan Smith wrote, you do not need to use your words to search for significance, Christian, for significance has found you. Significance has found you. You don't need this to get that. 
if you can't see that, that's a hearing problem. You're not going to fix it with this. If you can't hear the word, it is finished. Or behold, I have loved you with an unfailing love. Or come now, let us reason together. Or if you can't hear, behold what manner of love this is that we should be called children of God. If, if those things aren't satisfying this, we don't have a mouth problem. We have a root problem. And that's what we need to deal with. You don't need and can't use your mouth, your speech, no matter how good of a talker or bad a talker you are, you can't use that to get significance. And you don't need to because significance has already gotten you. And when we speak out of hearts that are satisfied in God and trusting God's word to us, then we will find, after we've listened to his words, we will find our words completely different. Friends, there is simply a night and day difference between someone who says the exact same words out of place of confidence in Christ and another person who says the exact same words out of a place of unbelief and insecurity in Christ. So here's the question. This is like totally putting all the weight on the Holy Spirit right now. Could we dumb, mere mortals, having just sat through an hour of another dumb, mere mortal talking to us, could we lift a sheet off of some trays and by drinking a cup and partaking bread, could God use that to communicate his love for us in a way that would get us started to feeling rested and satisfied in him? Well, that is like way above my pay grade. But if you're here in Christ, I'd invite you to come and let's see. And let me pray and ask God for help. Lord, we do pray your deepest blessing on this time. And we take it seriously. And we pray, God, that you would, as we partake of this cup that represents the, the spilled blood of Jesus. And this bread that, broke, that represents his body offered for us that we would have faith to see that in this you've demonstrated your own love for us and that while we were still sinners, indeed enemies, you died for us. We do not need to search for significance. Significance came and sought and has taken hold of us. And so now, Lord, as we come and partake of this table, would you please use it as a means of grace well beyond our ability to describe it, to transform and settle our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.